I'm too drunk to follow my notes here. Cut this part out. Where the fuck are we? <laughs> Just kick back in wherever you want. I'll let you edit um, it out. <laughs> the views that I express on this podcast are mine. And the same for our co-host, Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Well, greetings and happy holidays, Panoptic listeners. This is our second Reflections episode, and by virtue of the holiday season, our first holiday special. I'm your co-host, Jason Margarides. I practice strategic communications and change management, or car sales, according to some generous guy on Reddit. And as always, I'm joined by our co-host. And that's me, uh, Juan Pablo. And uh, what, is, what does that mean, that you do car sales? I don't, I don't understand. He likened the practice of strategic communication to uh, car salesmanship, like car dealerships. Uh, I don't know if that's fair to the car salesman. Oh, yeah. We'll see where this episode goes. I'm not feeling too good about it <laughs> right now. Starting well, right? <laughs> Happy holidays, Jason. <laughs> so what are you doing for the holidays where are you gonna go sell cars i'm gonna go to ohio your home state all right where they have some of the best car salespeople. people and we'll see how it goes it might have at some point yeah did ford have did ford have factories there yeah they used to <laughs> yeah. not anymore or not many not many left uh um, all automated away probably probably automated the car salesmen too um i still i still don't see how that comparison stands up i guess you guys sell cars kind of but you but you guys you're not selling like a thing you're selling a process or an idea or a new way of doing things right so it's process and strategy oh so we'll we'll talk more about it later yeah okay so tell me about what are we doing we're doing a holiday special yeah so we've recorded and canned three unreleased episodes on the economic consequences of automation and the limits of global economic growth. For me, these are really difficult topics to research given time constraints and the large amount of data we had to capture, interpret and present and debate lucidly. Or partly lucidly. We tried. <laughs> we'll find out yeah. uh, what you, the listeners think. You know, if you're interested in wanting to engage in the ongoing political discourses surrounding automation, especially if you're a member of the Yang Gang, or if you're Yang curious, or or if you're feeling the burn, shout out to to you one or if you're feeling or the any burn political like candidate. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, if you if you're following the primaries at all, I think the next three episodes will serve to enhance your political toolkit, and you'll receive a well-rounded overview of competing academic perspectives on automation. Uh, as a relative non-issue versus as a cause of job displacement versus as a symptom of larger systemic challenges. And you'll hear some possible solutions to these challenges. So whatever you're feeling on the politics of automation, the state of labor across the world really seems to be changing. Businesses have to understand the arguments to remain agile to macroeconomic changes. And academia must understand the arguments to adequately 
prepare our children to face the challenges of tomorrow. And thought leaders have to understand the arguments to propel our institutions forward to make the economy work better for us. So that is my fluffy car sales pitch for the next three episodes. Uh, and anything from you want to tack on? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Jason, I think, you know, we need to, apart from, apart from my pitch that I made for a Green New Deal, that got, where things got really heated between, you know, in our, in our arguments, I, I think what's, you know, apart from the, the kind of big ideas we were talking about in those episodes, they, they reflect these episodes, how complex some of the issues that the average citizen today, especially in the United States, has to deal with um, when they're doing things like voting for president, right? Uh, in the context of globalization and digital networks. So automation, as we tried to see, was a really tough topic to wrap your head around in terms of what are some of the, what are some of the things to think about? What is it? What is it a symptom of systemic issues? Is it the driver of lob, uh, job loss? You know, what what do we make of automation? And in our in our presidential campaigns, we get sort of like talking points, but it's hard to think it wrap around our heads, our heads around the really the deep uh, issues at stake here. So. You know, my takeaway from those episodes is that the role of communications media and uh, critical theorists theorists today, and maybe people like me who are thinking of uh, working in academia or somehow have a leg in academia, is is to serve as translators of really complex concepts, processes, issues into a set of sort of ideas and um, concepts that the average citizen can digest and maybe use to orient their action or rethink some of the ways if they think about those issues. Um, and that's, you know, it's obviously this is the world of what's been traditionally called the public intellectual, which is kind of a problematic role when it's changing with digital media and stuff. But, but I think, you know, it just, those episodes to me really highlight how complex these questions are that people are being asked to make decisions on, right? Like, do you vote for this person or that person based on something automation? And how do you know what automation is, what it's affecting, and all these different things? Uh, really complex stuff to just capture all the info, even if you just have time to do it. What if you don't, right? Yeah. And so, you know, our listeners may have preconceptions about what the future of technology holds, visions of robots on work lines performing human labor like that is probably the image of technology like increasingly taking over all sorts of things until there's nothing left for labor anymore but i think uh, the next three episodes paint a more complicated picture of what the future holds and why labor is changing uh might be a little bit more complex than just technology taking over yeah so yeah definitely um, certainly our most political episodes yet. And mm -hmm. I think you'll, you'll hear, um, Juan and I bump heads a little bit more than usual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but I all get, productive. I, got, I get passionate about the topic. Uh, well put though. And, and I, I think it was all productive. So, uh, we'll, we'll release part one of this new series on automation upon the start of the new year to kick things off on a properly dour and dystopian note. I yeah. drink my scotch right now. Yeah, I mean, we don't want people to get too comfortable with the at the end of this holiday season. Everything's warm and fuzzy, and spent time with family around the you know 
around the dinner table and and you forget that the world is uh falling apart around us right we want to make pe- <laughs> sure people remember the dystopian state of things uh as mm-hmm. soon as they start the new year no time to to think about how many days you're going to go to the gym uh per week and things like that uh but but also just to keep you know we are uh, our show is about uh this show in particular is about kind of looking back at what we've done, right? And we haven't just kept things dour and dystopian. I think we've looked at some really interesting issues, right? So, yeah. So, okay. So let's talk about what this, this you know, Christmas episode, right? What are we trying to do today, Jason? Other than say, other than sing some Christmas carols. I, I've never once in my life sang Christmas carols. <laughs> <laughs> That's do you do the, that? Um, um, I mean, it depends on the context, but I'm not. What's as, the context where you sing Christmas carols? Well, I mean, you, we, if, when you come from a Latin American family, there's a lot of context when you're singing Latin American Christmas carols. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. You, we, we, um. So in in Colombia, getting together to sing Christmas carols. Well, they're not Christmas carols like the ones that people sing here, and usually it's it's related to getting together and eating food and like uh, there's a religious element to it that people mm-hmm. just kind of rotely follow. Sometimes some people take it seriously. People just some people just do it because it's a good excuse to go uh, eat some food and light some fireworks afterwards. So yeah. Um, yeah, so that's when that's how fireworks. That's how uh Christmas carols work. But no, I don't like I haven't ever gone house to house in the US singing Christmas carols, if that's what you hmm. meant. <laughs> and I don't see you singing Christmas carols either. <laughs> Christmas for me was never religious. I don't come from a very religious family. Hmm. Or my my mom is Jewish and my dad was well, raised Jewish and my dad was raised Greek Orthodox. Huh. And they had me try both. I went to temple. I didn't like it. Went to church. I didn't like it. And then it just kind of all broke down. We Religion was not a part of our lives after that. Yeah, well, you know, Colombia is a is a very Catholic country where you couldn't escape Christmas around this time of year if you wanted to. Um, yeah. Even though, according to the Constitution, there's separation of church to state and things like that. People, there's Christmas stuff everywhere in all the public mm. places and um and it's a very catholic place so people people take it very seriously they're they're celebrating it for two weeks before it even starts and they're doing readings from this from this book of telling the whole story of jesus and they get to that's when they and that's the context in which they get together to, to sing and eat and things like that so it's uh it's and uh, you, if you grew up Colombian, most likely though it's not the case for everybody. You grew up culturally Catholic, if not uh, necessarily practicing. Interesting. So yeah, but I'm gonna. Uh, that's uh, that's that's how we. That's how I. That's the context in which I sing Christmas carols. <laughs> but yeah, I don't see you singing Christmas carols. <laughs> I, I guess I don't give off that vibe. Well, yeah. so you, so you didn't like Temple? I did. I hated both of them. You didn't like Temple. Oh, was I? I was I was young though. Uh, yeah. So you know, some people have asked me. Well, of course, you bring a child to any religious service; they're not going to enjoy it. And that's probably true. But I'm grateful for not being pressured to go. Yeah, it's just not something uh, I care about. Well, or, I... or from a certain perspective, I really do care about it. But 
probably not the compliant way yeah well you know maybe for another episode but i actually find judaism interesting as a religion so in oh, some ways fascinating more, in some ways more interesting than christianity for me um have you seen well we should talk about movies a little later but i just saw uh the coen's brother movie a serious man lately um uh, and i was like yeah i could i could do judaism maybe um okay it's like about that movie yeah we'll have to talk we'll have to talk about it another time but it's a what i like about judaism is how uh it's a god that can't hear you doesn't care about you and doesn't seem and just expects you to do the right thing for no reason (laughs) there's no reward there's no reward for for doing the right thing so Uh, you might as well live as if as if there is no god right kind of yeah i'm totally getting i'm sure People who are Jewish are probably pissed off by this description of <laughs> what my interpretation of the, of the Jewish the Jewish Godhead. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that aside, you know, uh, we've talked now we've that we've talked a little bit about Christmas carols and the holidays. <laughs> Let's talk about what we're doing in yeah. in this episode to reflect. I think on uh, on our on our on our show right on our on our podcast because to me the holidays have always been just a time to take stock of things i'm not much of a new year's resolutions person i don't i feel like if you're making a new year's resolution about something it's probably because if you know you if you're treating it that way it's because you really haven't learned the lessons of what you didn't last year right it's about looking at what you how your past year went learning mm-hmm. lessons about it and applying it your life it's not about saying well this year i'm gonna eat just uh i'm gonna eat no chicken or something you know it just doesn't see if it doesn't have any connection to things that you learned in your life then it doesn't it just sounds like something that you're not going to actually end up doing so for our podcast instead of resolutions for me i'm I'm, i think we're i think we're both on the same page in terms of uh, that this means some fine-tuning to our methods and our message uh, like good communicators and academics. And I, for one, know that this experience experience of podcasting is one that has got me thinking really hard about the way I use language, the way I communicate, and the effectiveness of my communication or lack thereof, right? Um, it's it's a learning experience in that sense. Um, it, I, I completely agree with you. What do you, you think, Jason? The... I think the podcast will always remain a work in in progress and we're always going to have to be checking how we're communicating about things and researching things and how we're finding the intersections of our disciplines. Um, So, so today, I mean, we're already off to a great start. I don't know how many minutes we're into this and we haven't really said what, what the main purpose of the episode (laughs) is, but that's, uh, that's kind of the point of, of this where it's, uh, holiday episode uh going to be a little bit less severe than our other yeah. episodes so so really i think today's episode is going to be a pulse check of the podcast uh building off what you were saying juan i think uh let's kind of reflect on some of the following questions and i think it will help our listeners get a better sense of what they can expect from us in the new year so things like now, what is Panoptic really about? Have we evolved on this question during the last six months? And who is, who do we think our target audience is? And what do we want our listeners to take away from our discussions? 
And also, who are we? Our backgrounds, our interests, our aspirations. We've kind of like touched on this before, but we've never really gone in depth mm-hmm. and told people, you know, given them a sense of, of who we are. Yeah. And um, finally, you know, what are some topics that we hope to cover in 2020? And we yeah. can, you know, end on some more stream of consciousness. How does that sound? That sounds good, Jason. Let's do it. So let's uh, start with what is Panoptic about? And have we evolved on this question during the last six months? So I, I think you, you probably recall it was difficult for us to figure out what Panoptic was going to look like uh, before we just did it. And, you know, after much deliberation, we formulated a statement of purpose that we were both, I think, happy with. Uh, and if you're a regular follower of Panoptic, you probably know it well by now. It's Panoptic is a podcast featuring conversations <laughs> between a Hopefully critical theorist and a management consultant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a podcast. Yeah. That's what it is. And, and we relate theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues in everyday life. Mm-hmm. So, um, we try. Yeah. Juan, do you want to mention some of your original criteria and co- uh, concerns surrounding the podcast? Because I know um, it, yeah. it was kind of a process for us to figure out for sure. how to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, you know, my concerns regarding the podcast have to do with this finding this middle point between our positions, our bo- both of our positions and interests, uh, which interests with questions uh, of the relationship between communication and social theory, power, technology, uh, but diverge in terms of our roles, right? Um, and this also means, I think, that perhaps sometimes it's hard for us to always find that coherent, coherent middle ground and not fall fall into sort of our own narrow disciplinary, maybe horizons, lexicons, uh, or just focus, focus and, and interest in the moment and sometimes talk past each other and, and, and maybe past any coherent audience, like you were saying. And I think we are still feeling out what this middle ground is, where philosophy and other, you know, more philosophical academic discourses and more practical discourses of communications and technology and institution institutions intersect. But I think we are getting closer to that sweet spot. Um, and what is most important to me, I think, is showing that the problems dealt with by about the podcast and what I think might, makes it worthwhile is trying to show that the problems dealt with in academic discourses like social theory, media theory, communication studies, science and technology studies, for instance, uh, and the humanities and social sciences and uh, cultural studies intersect with questions of related to action, knowledge, communication that are really central to everyday existence and everyday interests and the everyday interest of people living in our complex, you know, complex societies like ours. Yeah, that's great. I mean, for me, I wanted through through the podcast to create an outlet uh, to critically reflect on situations, techniques, and discourses frequently encountered in the workplace and more broadly everyday life, like relationships, popular media headlines, movies, and so on. My hope was to identify practical applications of theory in conversation with you, Juan. As you said, together we are continuing to work out some happy medium between theory and practice. I remain committed to our original statement of purpose, but with a few addendums. So the first one would be, I would like to try to focus more or do a better job at bringing ideas down to earth 
and conjuring kind of tangible applications of theory that listeners can in some way operationalize to act in the world. For instance, how might a consultant apply Stiegler or Benevov to produce a creative, effective technology change management strategy that supports a customer's policy mission? On the other hand, though, Juan, often we're being critical of the very foundations upon which modern leadership and managerialism are predicated. You know, critical theory is just, you know, honestly not concerned with your building a successful business. And this has become more and more apparent in conversation with you. So I want to be more transparent about this. Um, you know, but however, by reflecting critically on our normative foundations, we might realize new ways of doing things to generate value beyond something like continuous profit generation. And we seem to be entering a paradigm in which companies at best are attempting to restructure their supply chains around community and environmental stakeholders and at worst greenwashing their brands to create the illusion of social (laughs) accountability. So business leaders who can critically reflect can probably do better by their stakeholders. At least that's my hypothesis. So if you'll humor a a related tangent, here's something interesting. I read on Reuters the other day, you know, over the, the, the last few years, publicly traded companies with higher environmental, social, and governance rankings, ESG rankings, have outperformed companies with lower ESG rankings. So according to the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance, investments defined as sustainable now account for more than a quarter of all assets under management globally. But not all investors are buying into the hype. So there's some hedge funds, these are funds that engage in more risky types of investments. They've started short-selling high-performance ESG stocks, categorizing them as hyperinflated due to false promises or greenwashing. So in other words, the hedge funds are betting on high-performing ESG stocks failing in the near future because they don't think they're viable. So I'm curious to see if the markets are going to prove them wrong and we could probably should do an episode on this eventually when we get back to kind of that mm-hmm. idea of doing business with humanity in mind and how how much uh, credence you're willing to grant it. Back to the purpose of the podcast, though, you know, at the end of the day, Juan, we both share highly interdisciplinary interests. You know, really, we made this podcast for us, not for anyone else. So foremost, we're going to talk about issues that we both find interesting, but we're going to go out of our way to ensure that each episode stays true to the panoptic DNA, which is theory and practice. Yeah. You know, I think these addendums are really interesting, Jason. I, I particularly, I'm particularly interested in the second one you mentioned, uh, the fr- and the first one too. I mean, the first one I think is, it, it's a question of how do we apply it to everyday practical contexts, but it links to the second one in an interesting way in that I think it gets at the heart of the issue that we have to continue working out. And on the one hand, I think it's important to be able to connect academic course, discourses to everyday action contexts, everyday institutional settings. But on the other, I think it's also important for people to begin. And this is not just this, this is just people in general. This is people beyond uh, maybe people interested uh, who, you know, when you mention someone like business leaders, I think we also have to think about workers, people who are in administrative context, people who are in government institutions, people who are related and tied into institutions in one way or another. And it's important for these people to begin to think beyond the ex- existing institutional arrangements. And so to me, I think it's really interesting when we think about communications, technology, power, it's the way that these are connected to institutions and and the way these can be rearranged. And what do I mean by that? On the one hand, I think the way we organize work in government as opposed to civil society and private life, these are arrangements that are by no means natural um, and that 
or like somehow eternal um, and that once we you know once we can reflect on them and and they may not be the ones that we prefer or we think are in, in the interest of building a democratic or egalitarian society and this is something i think we have to keep discussing uh at and it's always going to be at a meta level uh because it's always talking about something that in a sense either doesn't exist or treats what exists as as you know from the perspective of like the the social t scientists. So it's important to do also provide tools for people to think about alternative arrangements of organizations that are central to our society, such as the, f the firm. So how can we imagine, you know, the question that I think I'd like to keep posing is how can we imagine different forms of organizing work, production, collaboration, planning, distributing goods, um, and, you know, producing goods. And I think we can build on existing frameworks to develop innovative uh, institutions and ways of organizing uh, work, governance, civil society that are more democratic and provide more of a general for the general welfare. But he, these are interestingly, I think these are really they might they're not really thought of as questions of communications and technology, but they uh, but they are. And uh, I think the models in the social sciences and humanities help us to see this and get there. Um, this doesn't mean, of course, that you can separate questions of acting. I think this means that you can't separate, you know, questions of acting in institutional and practical settings from the ultimately what's a political question, which is how do you organize uh, institutions and how do you connect uh, what I would call weak deliberative publics. So, you know, people who are interested in an, in an issue that uh, or interested, let's say, and what I mean when I say weak deliberative publics, it's publics and groups of people who who have something at stake, a common interest, but they don't make the decisions about that interest. And there are strong authoritative publics that actually have the power to make decisions about those specific interests. How do you link these two in a way that the in a, in a way that the the strong authoritative publics are are uh, accountable to these weak deliberative publics? So, for instance, in work, you know, there we have things like unions, and unions have played a role throughout his, throughout uh, the history of capitalism, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, in deciding in having a a say in terms of pays, having a say in terms of how things are produced and done at work, who 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 calls the shots and so forth. Uh that's one you know, that's one arrangement, one in which we have a union uh sort of representing workers and and business leaders who sort of are in a sort of tense relation of negotiation with the union. But that doesn't have to be the sort of last final technology of organizing work. There are other ways of thinking about organizing work that maybe are uh both more democratic and efficient um, beyond, let's say, uh, workplaces that are hierarchically organized where workers have no buy-in into the company except a salary and others that maybe are collaboratively owned where people all have a say and stake into what happens to the firm where everybody has a sort of decision-making power but there's a but there's a way to keep people accountable um, there's a way to connect i think protect people from being retaliated if they actually say what they think and vote you know and act in the way that they in, in their conscience right so these are these are i think questions that have to do with uh which I, I want to talk in a little bit of how they're related to things like communications in ways that people might not really think so. Um, and that, I think, is always going to remain, I think, a, to me, a part of the meta that, that we have to keep in mind when we talk about how you, how you, take, how you take really academic discourses and, and, and bring them into everyday life, right? Yeah, and the, the more we can boil 
every situation and issue in the world down to a matter of communication, the better, because <laughs> I tend to think of myself as a communications person. So mm. there's just all these career opportunities you're creating for me, Juan. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think of, I increasingly, as I'll tell you in a little bit, I'll th I think of myself as a media and theorist um, who sees the way sort of media organize our perception of reality, the way we communicate. And by media, I'm talking about, I'm using that term in a sort of disciplinary sense in terms of things like money, things like language, things like writing, things like images, and the way that they organize our reality, our emotions, our senses, the way we relate to each other, the way we move things around the world, like goods and services, commodities, and so forth. And, and I think we've our, our conversations about these things tend have tended to be too static because we think of, for example, um, we forget that capitalism is a sort of institutional arrangement where people are or exchanging things via the media of money, and money has a specific way of giving you information, and it can be a very powerful tool, uh, but it's not the be-all and end-all for, for organizing social relations um, and the exchange of goods and services. And we forget that. We, we fetishize it, and we lose track of other possibilities for practical action and for freeing up practical action in, re in the world for, for the individuals. And that's something I think I'd like to keep in mind. But it gets us, I think, to this question, right, of what who our target audience is and we, what, what we want our listeners to take away from our discussions because one of the issues of bringing together academic discourses and maybe trying to talk about everyday, uh, everyday context is academic discourse is very jargony. It's very, it has this very specialized language and it could be hard to translate that into sort of everyday speech, right? So uh, who would you define Jason as our audience? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, like I said, as we're making content for us, our audience is basically going to be made of listeners who share our interests. If I had to narrow it down, at least when I'm speaking, I'm thinking of people kind of like me, consultants, entrepreneurs, people in business and nonprofits who are interested in exploring kind of the why behind what we do in these organizations and applying this knowledge to improve our leadership capacities and crafts. You know, I want us to channel Socrates to effectively cross-examine difficult clients, to operationalize um, Foucauldian and Nietzschean techniques to generate organizational change, to make informed decisions about which strategic actions we are willing to commit to achieve certain ends, and so on. So depending on the topic, it's not always so obvious, Swan, how to bring theory down to earth to make practical connections for our non-academic listeners. But I'm committed to doing this, and it's really kind of a fun, creative process to do this with uh, with you. So, And I think this is where you, the listeners, can really help us. You know, you Please send us your ideas through the message box on the website, uh, www.panopticpod.com, and we'll give you a shout when we discuss your great ideas on the podcast. Uh, anyway, I, I think we may have a more academic audience as well. And Juan, do you want to talk about that? Do you agree with that? Could be. And, you know, I think there's, it's interesting to, to see how we can link. I, I mean, I'd, I'd honestly like to think of our audience as more um, people who are thinking about institutions and are connected to institutions in a wider sense. Um, beyond 
including but also beyond just the business world to government to people who are parts of you know parts of all kinds of organizations that are that have sometimes have nothing to do with with business so uh, lawyers and people who are looking thinking about how to use communications in a in the sense of things like justice or in the, or right so how how does technology change the way we can think about um, the way people are making decisions on uh, cons- as consumers how are they making decisions as moral actors right when you're when your uh, every move is being tracked uh, by the internet and you are being you're being uh, every trace you're leaving every digital trace you're leaving behind is being packaged and sold off to people who are basically trying to figure out how to sell things to you um, how to quantify this data um, you know what does that mean right so I think I think there are a lot of ranges in which I think of our audience as sort of intersecting with uh, the individual as someone who's trying to figure out a very complex society, uh, one that is permeated by by images, by by flows of communication, by digital technologies. Uh, the person who is a part of an institution and is trying to figure out how to act in it, whether it's in the business context or outside of it. And yes, the you know the person who is interested in academia and how to how it might link to real, you know how is it that how is it that these fields that I think have a really bad rap in general society how is it that they how is it that they link up to everyday questions because these two these two spheres of life are not in discussion right um, they really aren't in many ways we barely hear from from uh, I think people in academia in the in things in everyday sort of contexts. Uh, uh, now, and I think this gets obviously to the question: is like, how do we as individuals approach this question of uh, discussing theories of communication, power, technology? Um, how do you see yourself doing that, Jason? One one thing I'll tack on is that you know I, I work with a lot of people who exercise techniques of power and communication to try to change things within organizations. But they kind of they learn the process and they don't think much about it after that, and they mm-hmm. just kind of execute. And some of them are very successful doing it this way. Yeah. Um, but I, I really am curious to go deeper and understand like where do these techniques come from? You know, yeah. when we're doing change management stuff, I'm like, this reminds me so much of like Foucault and the Hawthorne studies, and of course we were able to do a whole episode on that. So, and, and I wonder if like digging into kind of the why behind we're practicing these things and like, you know, where they theoretically originate from, maybe um, that can be helpful. Uh, We can, you know, we can do better uh, in, in, uh, at our jobs. So, so that's kind of the project and uh, hopefully that resonates with some of our listeners. Yeah. In terms of, you know, who we are, uh, I'll, um, I can give you a little bio and and talk a little bit more about change management so my background is pretty interdisciplinary Um, from emerson college i have a bachelor's of science in political communication with a minor in philosophy and from johns hopkins i have a master's in government with a national security concentration uh, as well as an mba and i've worked on major political campaigns and security research in government in business development in marketing branding crisis management and of course in management consulting and uh, while applied strategic communication is really my passion um, and has been a major recurring theme throughout my academic career, I'm, I'm basically a generalist. 
So uh, that means I, I know a little bit about many different things, which lends itself to my being able to communicate at a very high level about whatever in business, government, politics, philosophy. At the same time, I try not to slump to pure rhetoric, which should, you know, I don't want to upset my Socratic people. Um, I really try to do my homework, and that is hopefully apparent if you've been following the podcast. I'll argue that in my case, being a generalist also lends itself to good consulting work. I'm able to shift between managing financial projects, technology projects, risk projects, whatever, quickly and uh, learn the business model, identify key pain points, and develop communications and change management solutions that demonstrably improve knowledge management, transparency, efficiency, leadership preparedness, and adoption of new ways of doing things. So really, how do I go about doing this? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've told someone that I work in, quote, unquote, change management, and they give me this confused look. So um, maybe I can try to paint a picture of what the typical change management project looks like, and then we can judge if it's on par with car salesmanship. (laughs) So I'm brought into a project, and the organization is implementing something new that will change the way they do business, new systems, technologies, policies, culture. And the change management process starts with asking a lot of questions, listening and building relationships with the client. And I'll I'll identify performance measures, such as the extent to which leaders, managers, and staff are prepared to adopt the change, as well as how much those stakeholders will be impacted by the change. And then I want to collect data to baseline those measures, which requires polling and interviewing lots and lots of people and conducting an analysis of the organization's change readiness. uh, readiness. And that's really how much work it will take to get people to comply with the change. So this can be a long, arduous process, but once I have a picture of the required level of effort, the next step is to implement essentially a marketing campaign to improve those baseline measures. So if the accounting team within our client is only 30% able to successfully use the new financial management system today, we have to deploy communications and training to get them at least, you know, let's say 50% more able by whichever deadline. And, you know, additionally, depending on the organization's goals, managing change can also require creating new ways of managing and sharing knowledge, uh, reskilling or upskilling staff into different areas of the business, managing enterprise risk, uh, working with media and other external groups, things like that. So when you and I, Juan, consider the application of theory to real-life situations, I'm foremost approaching these questions from the lens of a communications consultant with these particular experiences. You know, perhaps one day I'll go back to school and get that PhD, but it's not really on my radar at the moment. I have a sense that most PhDs don't get their degrees to work in management consulting, although I've met a few. (laughs) Maybe, Juan, you have a different experience. Yeah, I Um, I don't know. I don't know. When I go back to school, it will be to expand my communications proficiencies into new creative domains. You know, for instance, I'm interested in applying change management solutions to emergent technology ethics challenges like human substituting automation, which intersects with this broader question of how we may incentivize the markets to become more agile to human needs. You know, also throughout my first uh, master's program, I studied uh, domestic radicalization, and the literature is clear that successfully countering violent extremism requires robust, coordinated communications campaigns. And it would really be fascinating to conduct research on which messages delivered to whom and how are most effective at undercutting radicalizing narratives. 
and you know maybe we we can explore this topic more in uh in uh the new year so um otherwise you know my, my primary career focus today is just to be honestly a very good consultant which means creating results and impressing my clients and teammates as much as possible so that's kind of the best overview i can give you right now of who i am and what i'm yeah. looking at and how it relates to the podcast and uh w- what about you juan well you know first i let me say something about what you were saying to me it sounds like you are a strategist you know what i mean and then i guess in that sense you're kind of like a car salesman you know cars <laughs> you walk in and a car salesman from the moment you walk in his strategy is how am i going to sell this person a car and you know what am i going to do to get them to buy something uh here from me at a, this price right and to me you're a strategist right your job you and you have to be a generalist to be a strategist you have to be able to understand models and the way they relate to uh arra- institutional arrangements and hierarchies and where people stand and what their interests are and how you change processes and systems and how they interact and so forth i mean you're a strategist you strategize to see how you how to get from a to b but through using communication and and doing all these different things but to me it's interesting though um when we talk when we're trying to think about where we are projects meet is that in some ways it's very you're doing you're doing practice and i'm doing completely the opposite we're not you know i could i'm as i can as an academic right now i'm doing my you know you're, you were talking about your academic background i i studied uh political science for my undergrad undergrad at george mason university and i did my master's also at george mason university in literature and you can see that with that move from political science to literature um, I thought about going into maybe law or I thought about going into doing a PhD in law in political science. These would have been, what are you doing when you're doing political science? You're looking at politics as a scientist. You're not, again, you're not doing politics, which is strategizing how to gain state power, how to gain power at the local or the national level. You are looking at how politics works. You're comparing systems. You're understanding how, how it is that the you know this the modern nation state developed and things like that so but i've i've moved away from from politics when i moved to study literature i moved away from the realm of politics to the realm of culture which i found more interesting for some specific reasons though i continued being interested in the way culture was related to politics well, my interest was very much in the the kind of intersection of aesthetics and politics because I sort of my as a sort of general sense I look at aesthetics uh in the in the broad sense of a sort of theory of the senses how is it that uh our you know cultural media like cinema literature architecture uh music how do they how does this over time how do these media change how do the genres change how do they organize perception identity experience your horizon of understanding how is it the something like the ear uh for instance and the context of listening change over time in social and cultural contexts um and how does it relate to politics how does it relate to the way we organize societies how does it relate to the way we create uh, uh categories of the subject of the of the individual so it's very much the opposite of practical <laughs> in every single way but it is trying to understand i think it very much you have to thematize everything at a meta level and come up with concepts to explain um inter and in an interdisciplinary sense the way that different elements of life like the senses like perception like things like taste and uh like uh 
different genres, cult, uh, cultural objects, um, you know, media like language and the way they come together in a, in a work of literature, how do these intersect? Um, so it's very, um, you know, in some ways I would say that as an academic, I'm also sort of a generalist in the realm of culture. And that means that I have to range out and try to understand dimensions of politics, of economics, of uh, technology. Um, and uh, and in that sense, I could see how, how there's an intersection and also, right, the difficulty of finding how these things intersect sometimes um, is that you're very much oriented in practice in an institutional context. Uh, for thinking about how to how to improve processes very much in the realm of business or sometimes government, whereas I'm looking, I think, at the realm of culture as it bri- broadly uh, ranges out over connecting individuals in different in, in different contexts. Some of them having to do with institutions, but not always. Um, though I retain, I think, a really keen interest in just general political questions, even beyond. Um, just the realm of culture. Um, and, you know, I would categorize myself as a pretty, you know, politically attuned person in terms of my interests, uh, as people probably have noticed in, in this podcast. Uh, what else can I tell you, Jason? I, you know, that's uh, that's where I stand in terms of my, the way I, I look at the world increasingly sort of as a media theorist. I As my, my scholarship is focused on aesthetics in that broad sense. And I look at, you know, uh, the relationship between cultural objects and cultural phenomena, um, uh, representation, reception, context of spectatorship, you know, and the formation of publics, uh, identity experience, things like that, which all sounds very broad and abstract, but I, you know, it has to do with concrete things, which is, which is how it is, how did something like the, development of cinema changed the way people perceive the, the city the world around them time space things of that nature how did it change the way that they relate to each other and the way that they experience their own uh, things like the emotions for instance which we i tend to think tend to think as somehow you know we tend to think of things like the senses or the emotions as somehow transhistorical and like sort of we forget that you know if we're really good darwin post-Darwinists that things like the emotions would themselves have a history. They're not static. You know, love isn't some kind of trans-historical thing. It's very much a cultural, social, um, and you could even say uh, uh, physiochemical uh, uh, dimension of life, right? So, these, you know, this is what I'm doing, and this is why this, this the podcast and thinking about communication technology um, and power is interesting to me. Because these are these are some of the big realms that I step into as a as a, as an academic. Very interesting. I mean, when we first uh, started hanging out, our conversations were about Socrates and Camus, mm-hmm. and it was all pretty um, apolitical. But as we've as our conversations have expanded, I've certainly become uh, to know you as more of a, a political uh, voice. Uh, especially uh, in the context of of the ongoing uh, primaries right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, if it was the intent when we first started Panoptic to cover political issues. I think I've even told people that, you know, like when we did uh, Musk and Trump, that, oh, you know, maybe we got a little too political. Um, 
but i think we've actually gotten even like way more political since that episode Mm -hmm. so uh, um maybe it's something that uh, is to be expected uh, moving forward yeah well i mean i just don't it's one of those things where it's hard for i think for talking about if we're talking about institutions we have to forget that institutions are always political right they're about organizing their their institutions are networks of 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 action that are organized that are that are organized highly organized networks of action right where people go in there and as soon as they enter the institutions there's a whole set of rules that they have to follow to do things and interact um they have people have positions people have uh and they they have goals and they they have a strong uh, inertia so that people can move in and out of the institutions but they're always political i mean they always have a politics internal or related to the external world uh, if they're a firm they have a very specific set of um, goals which have to do with things like expanding growing profit uh, whatever it is right if they're political then it's very different and the institution is very much interested in trying to to expand uh, control over you know local or national governance and to to forward some kind of cause if they're not if they're not uh either of those political or economic they might have some other very specific uh interests but they but they're always kind of political right um, and i think that's the dimension that that uh is a little more sometimes in the, in in some contexts a little more meta uh in in when you're talking about things like power you're always talking about politics right technology economics sorry to technology communication and power powers where politics comes in yeah politics is about you know imbalances of power and information asymmetry we can we we could look anywhere and say well it's all politics but and then we can say well it's all communication at at risk of uh, annoying some people who are like well this is just like way too reductive so Juan, why don't we talk about some topics that we would like to cover in the new year yeah i mean now you know i think we still need to keep talking about artificial intelligence I think we need to keep talking about, uh, uh, well, obviously artificial intelligence takes us in a lot of different, in different directions, but we've talked about maybe looking at, uh, the role of something like philosophy as it relates to art- uh, artificial intelligence and maybe new contexts of governance. So one of them, you know, one really interesting thing to look at, and we talked about it is Google hiring a philosopher. Like what is the role of the philosopher at Google, Right. Here's a company that um, is trying to expand beyond its current role to play a more direct role in governance of everyday life, whether that's through things like sidewalk labs in Toronto, which I don't know if you've heard of, Jason, but it could be an interesting topic to discuss. Sidewalk labs is a sort of kind of prototype for an urban, sort of for a neighborhood, an urban sort of very highly technological uh, urban uh, you could only you could call it an urban infrastructure that's sort of ran by processes maintained by Google. So it's like almost like switching from what we've known for a long time in terms of sort of public services and you know things um, things paid by taxes and kind of um, your sidewalks maintained by your by your local government based on taxes or whatever it is, right? To to kind of things ran by companies based on data and there's some kind of monetizing model in it Uh, what is the role you know how do ai philosophy 
questions of ethics and morality when i say philosophy i guess you could say i'm i'm connecting it to questions of ethics and morality uh for the individual connect them with this these kind of these kind of new projects for governance right which i think are highly problematic uh but then you know, uh, that's one topic I could think of at the top of my head, Jason. I don't know. What do you think? What have you thought of? Yeah. So that, that, that reminds me of the kind of more notorious issue of, you know, we're entering an era where we're going to have fully autonomous vehicles on the street and they're going to find themselves in situations where either the passenger has to die or the civilian on the street has to die. And how do they render those decisions? And um, that may require the expertise of an ethicist. Um how do you code those decisions into the AI? Those are all interesting issues that intersect with law and how government is going to work with industry or not work with industry to regulate this. So uh, that might be an interesting uh, hmm. issue to cover. Um, and, you know, thinking back to, uh, I mentioned that I had spent a little time studying radicalization, which had much to do with the, you know, topic of, what is culture and then what is um you know what does it mean yeah. to be radical you know does radical mean you know w w w beyond culture you have you know subculture and then you have counterculture or even anti-culture and i think by yeah. many definitions to be radical is to be at least countercultural, if not anti-cultural and at least radical in, in kind of when we're thinking about um, security risks, about terrorism. Yeah. And then uh, uh, also kind of relating to what is ideology and look out into the world and then spot ideology by certain attributes. You know, corporate culture is very important, which often determines how a company does business and how the people within that organization operate. One uh, fascinating uh, case study is is the uh, company called Blackwater that ran into lots of different uh, issues. It was a mercenary firm that did work in Iraq and Afghanistan for State Department and ended up uh, causing a lot of harm in the long run. And this was a very uh, ideological company run by a very ideological person, Eric Prince. And it'd be interesting to see how you know if we can link the corporate culture of blackwater to the quality of service or to the outcomes of uh, this company operating overseas and, and what what that says about culture in general the importance of of culture and how that links back to our discussion on ide ideology and radicalism so uh, that is you know two or mm -hmm. three episodes right there Th that'll be a large research effort but i think well worth the effort It'd be interesting from both a, a th theoretical and practical standpoint yeah i think these are i think those are both really interesting and worth discussing because uh, and here's where the things like ideology and radicalism these are questions that relate then to things like uh culture as a as a something formed let's say by language by certain meanings by certain rituals and customs um you know we could we could we could connect up and link up to to social theory, things like Durkheim, things like Habermas, things like Weber, who are trying to, who were, you know, canonical theorists trying to figure out how is it that societies were kept together? What is it that molded them in, in a sense, kept them from, you know, from falling apart? What, how is it that people were tied together in a society and saw themselves as members of a society? Um, 
And and so those questions become questions then of, you know, someone's radical is somebody's one one group's radical is is uh, is later in history considered someone who, who changed the society for the better or, or not, right? Uh, one um, one person's ideal, you know, one group's ideology is later looked at from the outside by a social theorist as something that was um, that was uh, that was you know that was had all these deficits in terms of hierarchies or or things like that. I mean, we could look at our own society and, and our own ideologies of things like race and the way they influenced slavery. Um, and you know you could go, you don't have to go back too far to see how that was central to our history for instance uh that was part of an ideology right an ideology of of race and and uh and how then we needed to you know what that meant in terms of the juridical political standing of different peoples so you know these are really fascinating questions i think that you could link up to social theory and and other dimensions but that we could even link up to very practical everyday things um which is how to understand institutions and the culture of institutions and change in institutions and how to bring ideas that could rock institutions but that might be very central for the survival of those institutions yeah Um, well by by a journalist jeremy scahill's account the leaders and employees of blackwater viewed themselves as christian crusaders it's no wonder that they went overseas and killed muslims and they were very good at it so you know that that links back to i think what you were saying about race so that 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 would be a really fascinating uh, issue to cover uh especially like how from from my perspective if a communications person had to go into that organization and try to change it somehow and maybe to try to change that organization is to destroy that organization (laughs) but um you know also would be part of the conversation but i I think that would be a really fascinating exploration and that gets at the like a a big issue which is the issue of legitimacy right and and this is this is again a question of politics some institutions are legitimate for a certain time for a certain amount of people and at some point they become illegitimate and what are the under what conditions do 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 uh, do institutions become illegitimate, right? And then does not deserve really anybody's assent in terms of their allegiance, right? This can this goes all the way from many things like a firm to to or I guess you could call them micro institutions like a firm to macro institutions like a nation, right? Uh, and that's that's I think a really interesting question. You can't. Can't I mean? Could you reform something like Blackwater? Would you even want to try? Right? If you were a management consultant, that's what that was your job. You know, maybe the only thing to do as a management consultant would be go in there and and like try to stri- strategically consult them to shut themselves down. <laughs> right? That's the at the end of the day, the question of ethics and morality comes in and legitimacy and whether it any whether an institution like that can get any, can gain anybody's assent. Um, beyond people who have a radical ideology of of a war of civilizations and religions and killing killing Muslims, you know, uh, which has I think no standing in our in our sort of in our sort of multicultural uh, complex uh, uh, society. It's also a, a question of uh, policy and governance, because uh, what they were doing was very much 
you know, encouraged and uh, funded by the U.S. government. And also, you know, you can you can have competitive markets that operate kind of outside the public markets when you have like enter the government contracting sphere. So you're you you're basically having companies who are profiting from executing policy or helping the government execute policy more effectively. Yeah. And that's that's interesting as well, but but makes the issue of Blackwater even more complicated, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or beyond that, um, we've also been watching lots of uh, movies and shows this year. Probably some that we'll want. You know, we talked about Joker, and that was still, I think, one of our most popular episodes. Oh. So we should probably do a few more reflection pieces on shows we're watching i know you mentioned you just finished mindhunter i just finished uh, sec- the second season as well oh yeah and finished it it was great a little bit ago mm-hmm. interesting to see where it goes i've been on a like a serial killer documentary kick recently i've started i've been listening to another podcast called dr death about a doctor a surgeon who basically was able to murder lots of people in hospital beds like in surgery and was just passed around from hospital hospital to hospital until he finally there were enough complaints that he was arrested i think or so i haven't finished the the series yet so i don't actually know what happens but i mean it's terrifying but it also got me thinking like how why is it that i am so and, and apparently millions of other people just so fascinated with serial killers or people who 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 do horrible things that that are totally like clearly anti-cultural and you know in Mindhunter season 2 they kind of explore this with detective uh trench is is that his name or, yeah tench or trench or tench, something tench bill tench yeah. who kind of gets enamored in these conversations with or he likes the attention people coming to him asking him about his work and yeah, yeah. he kind of becomes disassociated from his family in the process yeah yeah and uh so even in in the show they're had they have they're they're cognizant of this strange fascination we have with serial killers so i'm curious like maybe that in itself is something worth reflecting on i think so i mean this links up to this question of radicalism and the way some people in specific societies uh can when things go wrong in processes of socialization personality uh personalities can really get thrown off and become i mean become very destructive right and uh i think what's really interesting about the show and what i'd like to discuss it further is the way it's really smart about uh i think in a in a very one of the background sort of discourses in that show to me is the way that the whole notion of the serial killer, which which I didn't know until I watched that show, and I and I, I want to do more reading about that. It seems like it was something developed in the, you know, by these by these sort of researchers at the FBI in the seventies. That it's mm-hmm. so recent that this notion of the serial killer, and it wasn't that there hadn't been killers who had you know, people who had done horrible things and killed more than one person before but it looks like there was a certain type of crime related to murder often related to to sort of like uh to sex as well that started emerging at this time period 
Which is also the time period, by the way, where these sort of discourses arise of postmodernism and a sort of new landscape of uh, images, of flows, cultural, you know, media technological flows, I would say, and a sort of dislocation of traditional notions of the self, um, which are which are really interesting. I think that the way they're sort of being connected in this show subtly kind of like saying, huh, these are, we can no longer make sense of what's going on. Uh, and people are having a really hard time understanding why these people do this. But the show, I think does also a really great job of showing that these are more than monsters and kind of evil devils or like demons or something that these are very human actors who commit these crimes. Really pathetic. Right. I mean, I don't know what you get from that show, Jason, but you get that the people who do this stuff are really, they're really pathetic. Like in the, in the, not in the sense of the word, in the sense of the word that they're, that, that, that they're really pitiful, right? That the reasons that they do these things have, that there's a lot of like, uh, human sort of frailty that goes into when people will go to this extent. So it's really, it's a really fascinating show because I think it does some, some, something to, to make you know what these people do is i mean there's no other word for saying that it's evil but also it makes us rethink what evil might be right um it's not just some like just that some people are born like that but that sometimes we our societies produce monsters right and this is really fascinating to me about that show and i think it, it connects these questions of how socialization processes can go really wrong and have question and communication there is central there how people form meaning and how they understand the world and how that forge forms the word that they the way that they relate to each other to their own sexuality to um to their own instincts and desires right and i think that's what's really fascinating to me about that show so now yeah. you know now that i spent five minutes riffing about it Hopefully people will go and watch it, but I think it's a it's a really one of the more interesting shows I've seen on TV in a while. Very dark, yeah. <laughs> like, um, Super dark. Very dark. I I need to have I need, can't watch it without my wife. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> the 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 uh, subjects they interview all seem to have you know different forms of narcissism, and yeah. you know if you like Ed Kemper has this kind of like he puts on this like this like Nietzschean will to power show and he like seems very like intelligent comes off as very intelligent and kind of in control of things but like he could kind of rip out of his shell and like attack you and strangle you at any moment yeah um that guy's but it very unique <laughs> yeah and you know the at the end of the well spoiler but at the end of the first season you know he lashes out at Holden and hugs him. And then Holden has like a massive panic attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it's all kind of narcissism and like kind of trying to exercise power over the environment to, um, as kind of maybe like a, some kind of protective measure. So in, in that sense, mm -hmm. yeah, I can, I can see, um, there's something to, to pity about it. Um, something that's like very sad about these people. Hmm. Well, I mean, we find out over and over again some of those people that they're that they're they're just kind of like pathetic. That they're you know they'll act, they'll do all these things, but uh, but the way that they some the way that they that they when they get really good at interrogating and understanding their person their like mentality, they can do things like build a profile and they understand that these are people who are just 
sometimes like narcissistic, but also super frustrated, you know, yeah. and you just have to start talking about your, their mother or like show them a shoe and they can't control their emotions. They can't control their desires. They can't control their, the way that they act, you know, they lose complete, complete control of the self. Um, it's a really fascinating show. I think from that extent and it's, you know, with that, with that in mind, the way it sort of portrays, um, these is not quite evil, but more almost like, almost like just very, you know, just personalities gone wrong. Almost you could say it. that can do, you know, that then lead to these horrible things. Well, almost all of them come from a place of trauma, usually sexual trauma. Yeah. And this is something that my uh, fiance studies uh-huh. and I'm sure she, she has uh, clients with children who have experienced horrible things and you need to intervene early to prevent, you know, creating someone who is not going to be able to integrate in society very well. So maybe, maybe we should have her on the, on the podcast when we talk yeah. about Mindhunter. That would be really interesting to see what she thinks about it. I'd be yeah. curious what, you know, what she, her thoughts have been as she's watching it Yeah, from the, you know, from the perspective of, of uh, the psychological discipline. Cool. Well, um, so those are kind of the main things that uh, we wanted to uh, discuss today and kind of checking the pulse of the podcast. And maybe we can end on a few questions here to uh, end the year off. Yeah. And so, so Juan, uh, you know, we've talked about the need to make philosophy more accessible to a wider audience. Yeah. Uh, And what have you done to increase your students' understanding of abstract critical readings and concepts? And has anything worked? Anything not worked? You know, I it's it's uh, I've been teaching this uh, semester at a community college, and uh, coming from you know where I where I've been as a PhD student, uh, you really have to uh, you know one thing I've really had to think about is the way I use language to communicate. Um, these are students from all different backgrounds, many of them who don't, uh, for instance, in an inter-literature class that I was teaching, who don't uh, have the concepts and methods, you know, that I've been learning and trained in, um, and who are looking at, who might be taking a, an, uh, sort of a survey literature course with without any interest in, you know, some of them are training to be teachers, some of them are training to be uh tutors and ESL and second, you know, English as a second language or whatever, but they're not, uh, they're not training to be academics, but you still, I still want to, I want them to take this class and try to understand what, you know, literature might be as a discipline, but you can't just start throwing jargon at them. You really have to think about your language and how you can make them think of things like the way genres change over time, the way languages changes over time, the way our relation to texts change over time, and our uh, identity changes in relation to these texts. And why it is that some of these texts are so difficult and that are so alien for us and the work we have to do to bridge that gap. So I think giving the students some basic concepts to start with that we can build on is really useful. You know, something that we can start that I think they can intuitively start to grasp and in a way uh, putting uh, these questions in relation to things that they might be more that showing them examples that really might resonate with them. So, for instance, you know, 
we had to read for this class uh, Hamlet, you know, this sort of classic Shakespeare text. And when you're teaching it to, to a group of students, again, who, is not, who are not trying to be literary scholars, you're like, okay, how do you get them to read this so that they don't just say, oh, well, this is this is confusing, the language is too florid, It's what is this about? You know, one way to do it I found that was useful was showing them film, a really good recent, not to, well, not recent, by recent, I mean like from the 90s, film version of, uh, of Hamlet that's really well done. Um, so they can juxtapose and see what this text of a play that was written in, you know, in the 1600s looks like, looks like uh, when it's when it's brought to life, you know, the way that actors use the language, the way that they use pauses and things like that. So, and the way that these different media changed our perspective and the way that we relate to these, to this object, to Hamlet. So no, I think that's really, that's, that's one thing I've thought about, you know, that's, you'd have to be really careful about the language you use. You have to be very strategic and you'll like that about the way you (laughs) communicate as an entry point uh, to create a kind of knowledge base for people to be able to build upon on their own and start thinking about things more fluidly and less, in less static categories. Um, well, do, do do you ever try to bring the text you're re, you're you're covering in in class? Do 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 you create a value proposition and say, well, these texts are gonna do X, Y, and Z for you, which is kind of what we try to do on the podcast between like you and you and me, you know, yeah. starting with theory and moving down to practice. I don't know, like you're gonna have a a very diverse crowd of students, I'm sure, but. Maybe there are ways for you to, with certain texts, to show that they're like you can take this and do something with it, or it's going to help you like think about this in a certain way that you know is going to pay dividends in the long run. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> framed it that way. You know, that's a good point. That's a good question, I think. But it's also it brings up this problem of uh, the relation between value and things like literature. So, literature and culture, as you already know, is already highly highly charged in terms of values and what people think is good versus bad and what people like, you know, there's nothing as, as polarizing as what people like in terms of music, right? Like, Oh, that's trash. Or, Oh, I love that. You know what I mean? Popular music versus whatever classical music versus whatever country music and the way people identify with these things. So you can't ever, one thing you can't do in one class like this is ever go like this text Hamlet is going to teach you how to be a moral person <laughs> because you're going to lose everybody. I think what's interesting is Tom, okay, it's trying to, for, trying to show them the way, let's say, these things are talked, the way these texts uh, work almost like little machines uh, that do specific things, that interrogate specific questions, that assume a specific spectator, that assume a specific language and that are that are really uh they're not and because it's literature it's not uh, you can't gain anything practical right away from it if anything what i'm trying to get them to take away at the end of the class is that um that there if we have some basic concepts to th- rethink how these texts are really deeply historical then we can start thinking about literature in different ways and we can read more more widely and and be more be better readers be more critical readers so that we can pick something up and see, okay, so what is the writer trying to do here? How are they using language? How are they using form? How is this structured as a, in terms of its form? 
what is its content and what might be what might be the text trying to do in terms of the way it's it's making me feel and why is it making me feel that way uh things like that right because some text sounds like a value proposition uh it is and the value proposition at the end of the day is don't just take a text um for what it people tell you it is like yeah. oh this is a classic you should read it it's good for you it'll make yeah. you smarter and no it's a it's a text from a different culture it's it had the specific function sometimes ritualistic sometimes not but it and that the people you know the, the what some of the themes that are there that we that uh we can read off of it are things that haven't even that they would that the very people in that culture wouldn't even have been able to see because they were so immersed in it um so, you know, with with Hamlet, there's a bunch of stuff you can. Um, I, let, let's not go down that line because it's not a literary podcast. But you see how I think in in, in the in the context of the literature, there's nothing. You can't come in and tell people like, this is what you're going to gain from this class, practical because, and this is what makes things like culture really problematic in today's world. This is why it's getting defunded. This is why it's always been attacked, <laughs> because yeah, yeah. what you're being, what you're teaching in the humanities is how to think, the processes of thinking. You're not teaching anything that's immediately practical. A set of information, how to act in a specific way. You're teaching people how to think, how to cons- how to think historically, how to think in terms of the shift of genres and how they relate to a shift of personality types and uh, things that people value and uh, and things like that so yeah well i mean that i'd I'd throw this back back, question back to you is how uh you know how has i think our podcast and the way it made you think about language influenced your work specifically do you come in for instance and when you're doing change management and how do you you i mean you're being i was i was telling you i'm being strategic as a teacher Right, I'm being strategic. I come in there and I don't tell them, "Hey, we're gonna read some stuff. You're gonna love it. It's all really good for you, and it's gonna teach you good morals." But I, but I sort of like strategically, I'm trying to get them to think about literature as a political historical field of of cultural objects that are highly charged and that that are uh, and that are gonna make them uncomfortable and that are gonna that are trying to do things to them because art is about illusion it's about messing with your emotions and it's about making you believe things that don't even you know you're crazy when you're reading a novel you pick it up you actually pretend that this shit exists excuse my language and then and then you put it down and most people if they're sane they'll realize that that was illusion and the reality now we're back in reality unless they don't right which has actually happened in the history of humanity where people take culture or or fantasy too far and they think this is how the real world is. And uh, so when you go into change management, Jason, do you do you start with a value proposition? How do you relate strategically to the actors that you're dealing with? Well, I'll say the one thing that has changed for me, and probably I was doing some of this before the podcast, but uh, working with you and doing the kind of research we do has broadened my philosophical and, and critical vernacular quite a bit i'd say so i'll find that you know half of what i'm doing all the time is selling change management so i guess in that sense i'm a, a car sales person <laughs> selling like the value of why should we do this to the client and then also to like my teammates and leaders at 
the company I work for. And, um, you know, that's how they grow the practice. And part of that is documenting why it's important that that requires persuasion. And often I'll reach back to this philosophical and, and critical vernacular to kind of explain why change management, like where it comes from, uh, why it works, and and then kind of linking that into the, the data on, um, you know, how, you know, when we have strong change management programs, we, we show that there's a much higher return on investment. <clears throat> but, you know, we can think about it in terms of Foucault, you know, like power, supervision, uh, or even thinking back to Nietzsche and see like how restructuring power dynamics within an organization can help a business perform better in different ways. Hmm. So that that's one way of doing it. So it, it'll be kind of in the, in, the, in the documents I write, the strategies I create, having that kind of exposition. And then when I'm just talking to people and building relationships, it comes up quite a bit. And often it's, you know, it's great conversation starters can kind of like, you know, get someone to say, oh, that's really interesting. And they, you know, branches off into other conversations and gets them more mm-hmm. interested in what we're doing. And then it creates more opportunity. So yeah. this has been really useful from that standpoint. So I have other questions for you to finish up that are just more a stream of consciousness in a quick sense. Okay. So Jason, what are you looking forward to next year? Oh, so many things. Um, a promotion? <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, uh, I'm looking forward to, um, of course, the many interesting topics we're going to cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting married, so that will be exciting. Yay. Congrats. Um, <laughs> we're uh, trying to get uh, Greek food catered, so still working on that, but uh, seems optimistic. Are you going to change man- change management your your wedding? No, that has been that's all been uh, Hannah, my fiance. All right. She is change managing the, the wedding. Okay um uh, well is that what you're looking forward to getting married that, that's that i guess promotion. That, that is what i'm looking forward to the most yeah. okay good um what what about you oh, what am i looking forward to mm, yeah whew, finishing oh no i'm not gonna finish my phd next year <laughs> so no not that <laughs> uh finishing though writing the dissertation next year that'd be nice um yeah finishing the dissertation uh maybe starting to apply for jobs in our awful uh academic market where thousand people will be applying to every job i apply to and it's going to be a roulette wheel well so i'm looking forward to that and looking forward to uh the end of the winter and looking forward to reading a lot of good books and hopefully seeing some good movies. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. So, Jason, what Very movie cool. do you want to see made next year? Which movie do I want to see made? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I would love to see a uh, like a, a psychological profile of Bruce Wayne, but I don't think that'll ever happen. <laughs> that's that's been my dream movie since I was like eight years old. <laughs> We kind of got that but with hasn't Joker. Every ba- hasn't every Batman movie been a psychological profile? Of no, Tony not Bruce to the Wade? extent that I need it to be. Not as deep as I need it to go. Well, you need to write it, Jason. You need to write it. 
I want to know what... Only you can make it happen, because you know Hollywood is never going to make that movie. Well, because if you think about who Bruce Wayne is, it's really kind of an impossible character who's, like, simultaneously psychotic and highly intelligent, highly functional. Um, <laughs> you mean every CEO yeah. out there? <laughs> well, Bruce Wayne is not a good CEO. He's, you know, falling asleep <laughs> at meetings. His business is failing. Like, in every movie, Wayne Enterprises is going bankrupt because he's so uninvolved, and you have all these corporate activists who are trying to get him out so he's really quite a bad ceo <laughs> all he wants to do is, is beat up criminals at night <laughs> can you be a good ceo and a good citizen <laughs> this is a question being posed by the batman movies this is certainly um, the the political discourse that should be occurring now you know it's 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 what it's what's missing from the uh, how do we uh, incentivize the markets to do better by us it should also be to incentivize um, proper vigilantism. <laughs> hmm, paramilitaries in the street has always been good. For, that would be an opportunity for, for Blackwater. Oh God! <laughs> Actually, it happened with uh, Hurricane Katrina. Blackwater was oh yeah, I mean was on the ground, and if things go a certain way it might happen again yeah yep anyway you know what movie i want to see made next year or want to see made what's that i told you about the about Greek, this. i want to see Greek like one. yes i want to see some kind of movie made about like socrates but i want it to be really good not bad i want it to be <laughs> super like it feels like you've stepped into athens and you know in the in the age of like you know in the age of uh pericles or something i wanted to feel like that oh a movie about pericles that would be amazing like about politics in athens it feels like really real though with like people speaking greek you know, no British accents. I don't want to see any <laughs> British accents. I want it to be Greek, like ancient Greek. Yeah. And and uh, obviously you can have subtitles. And then and then I want it to be super raw feeling, like no cultural adjustment for our sensibilities. Just how that how just a really strong attempt to imagine what life could have been like. Um, so it has to be shot with that, you know, this, the attic sky and the marbles of Athens and the marble white of Athens and the, the, the blue attic sky and the sea in the background. And it just sounds amazing in my, in my head. (laughs) Yeah. I want to see that movie. Nobody else does, but I do. I would love to see that movie. I would love to see the conversation that we covered between Socrates and Thrasymachus as a as a movie someone's mm-hmm. gonna make mm-hmm. a plato movie right and a socrates movie about the death of socrates yeah i think i mean i think if somebody's made that movie but a really good one um what are you reading uh what are you reading right now what do you want to read jason i have been in passing um glossing through steven pinker's enlightenment now um uh, i've been uh I, I'm reading a chapter from a Dostoevsky book. In a, Which one? Uh, I got a. I, I totally forgot the name. It's um, it had it has much to do with uh, religion. So I was recommended to me by um, Hannah's 
dad. Maybe we can talk is about it, it later. Stefan, I'm sorry, is it Crime and Punishment? No, no. It's um, I, it's not in front of me, so don't quiz me on, on him right now. <laughs> well, I mean, he was critic, uh, one of the great critics of modernity. But, I mean, uh, it depends on which But very interesting. Read. I mean, it, it reminds me much of, of Camus, uh, especially the uh, ending where Mer- uh, uh, in The Stranger with Merceau in the prison and the chaplain comes and speaks to him. And they have this argument and Merceau ends up completely den- denouncing Christianity. And it's one of the most uh, just like heart-wrenching and inspiring all at once like monologues that i've ever read Mm. and what i'm reading now has a similar feel to it yeah so i'm enjoying it no i know dostoevsky does not have the same sense of religion that you find in camus no i don't think so no but there's that and i've been uh, going back and uh reading through a blackwater actually because uh, when we do end up having that conversation, there's a, a lot of uh, pre-work that has to go into it, and I'm trying to f- figure out in my head how to do it. Cool. Cool. Oh, and the book is called Blackwater by Jeremy Scahill. Yeah. It's good. It's a good book, yeah. He's a good, uh, he's a, he's a really good journalist, it seems like. Yeah, and he's he's on the podcast, uh, The Intercept, and they have yeah. kind of like progressive views on foreign policy. Yeah, I read the Intercept from time to time. They've got some decent, decent pretty good stuff. Um, so, what about you? Um, I'm sure you're reading hundreds of things. No, not hundreds of things. But, uh, well, right now I've been reading very organized, in an organized way, because I've been working on some fellowship applications, so I've been rereading a lot of stuff as I write. Uh, but I am reading, let's see, I just got a novel for... Christmas that I'm going to start I got it for myself <laughs> and I'm going to start reading it uh, in the next few days and it's a novel by a Austrian novelist called Ingeborg Bachmann um, and I started reading it and it's already really good it's called the novel's called Malina and it started reading it and it's really good I'm reading a science fiction novel um, by a great uh, American writer who passed away recently, Ursula Le Guin. It's called uh, The Left Hand of Darkness. Really good stuff. And I'm reading a couple of academic stuff, like some academic books, but in a very disorganized way. Hmm. Uh, on this side, what am I reading? I'm reading, I'm actually reading on some philosophy too. I'm reading Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations which is really interesting. And uh, I'm reading a book by, yeah, some other academic stuff. And I'm, I would have to look at my iPad because I have a bunch of books there. But uh, yeah, what am I, What and I'm looking forward to reading some more novels over the next year. Yeah. Some more novels, yeah. Uh, looking forward to reading some more novels. Um, there's a lot of good stuff out there, a lot of good stuff. So I'm excited to get started with this book by uh, Ingeborg Bachmann. Started reading it already; it's very good. Um, okay, well, yeah, I, I haven't I haven't read a work of fiction in I can't even remember when the last time I did that. Well, 
I've, never too late to start I'm sure I'm, I'm sure i'm missing out never too late to start laura's been reading my wife's been reading lots of science fiction very prolifically she's been reading things like uh right now she's reading neuromancer which is a classic science fiction book by william gibson a lot of people say that uh the matrix was inspired by it um written in the 80s but there's something like the internet that appears in it so really interesting and there's something like ai that's like basically trying to take over the world that appears in it so it's a really interesting book some good stuff out there jason never too never too late to start very cool uh that reminded me the a new matrix is coming next year there's a new matrix yeah Mm, that's gonna be with uh what's his name uh neo is coming back uh what's his name uh uh i know who you're talking about (laughs) john wick yeah that guy Uh, the actor yeah that guy come on he's coming back remember his name right now Uh, so that'll be interesting speed the movie speed come on yeah yeah how can we not remember his name keanu reeves keanu reeves he's coming back as neo is what you're telling me yes all right it's gonna be awesome so i mean it sounds like 2020 is gonna be a great year all right, it does. It Lots does, of things Jason. to look forward. Lots to. of things to look forward to. Well, that was fun. We did our holiday special. That was, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Now we can go. Now you can go back to continuing to drink since it's the first since the weekend before uh, the holiday. Drinking and uh, editing this episode and getting it out on time on today, Monday, which will for for you the listeners, it will be Monday. Right before Christmas for those right who before celebrate Christmas. it. All right. Yeah. Well, so I'm looking forward to doing uh, many more of these, Juan. Yep. Hopefully to 2021 uh, or our 2020 holiday special, and we'll uh, reevaluate then. Maybe this will be a tradition. Sounds good. All right, Jason. All right. Have a good trip to Ohio. Talk soon. See you in the new year. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.